and welcome to Second Nature. My name is May, and today we have a special episode that highlights the Cultural Studies Colloquium season of Spring 2022. Our first speaker of this season is Professor Julieta Singh, who is an Associate Professor of English and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Richmond. She is the author of No Archive Will Restore You, Unthinking Mastery, Dehumanism and Decolonial Entanglements, as well as The Breaks. She teaches courses on decolonial literature, the ecological humanities, and queer studies. She has published her work in South Atlantic Quarterly, Women in Performance, Social Text, Cultural Critique, and Studies in Gender and Sexuality, among others. She is also the recent recipient of a 2019-2020 ACLS Burkhart Fellowship held at Columbia University's Institute for Research on Women, Gender, and Sexuality. Her latest book, The Breaks, released in fall of 2021, takes the form of a letter to her young daughter about race, inheritance, and mothering at the end of the world. Her talk, which was featured on Thursday, February 10th in 2022, was titled Lives of Brick and Mortar. In this episode, we have a first-year student, Aparna Shastri, interview Professor Singh about her work, her talk, and hopes she has for future graduate students. I am a decolonial scholar and creative nonfiction writer, and my trajectory was that I started off as a, as a PhD in comparative literature and was trained in a cultural studies and, and comparative literature program at the University of Minnesota. And over the last 10 or so years of my career have morphed from being a post-colonial theorist and literary critic to becoming more of a, an intellectually informed nonfiction writer. I wrote a dissertation many moons ago on the politics of food and eating in post-colonial literary texts. And it was a so-so dissertation. And the year that I got my first job, when I was thinking about revising this dissertation and turning it into a manuscript, a very brilliant scholar and friend now named Parama Roy published a totally incredible book on the same topic called Elementary Tracks. And of course, I was very influenced by her writing in my dissertation, but I realized this person had written a book <laughs> that was far superior to the one that I could write and essentially on the same topic, a kind of deconstructive approach to thinking food and eating across post-colonial texts, in particular for Parma, South Asian. So I responded to it by uh, writing a very glowing book review <laughs> and deciding to write a different book from my first book. And that's how Unthinking Mastery came into being. And it emerged because I, while I was writing my dissertation and while I was a graduate student going to conferences and hearing the kind of major, major figures in my field, the big names in my field, um, giving keynote lectures at conferences and such, that there was a recurring return to a need for us in our disciplines to become ever more masterful over languages, over area studies, over our disciplines, over our writing. And something about it always bumped for me, never felt right. Mm -hmm. um, and I think for the most part in, in academia, or at least in a kind of standard, straightforward Western European academia that I was raised in, 
uh, your feeling didn't really count. The thing that didn't feel right didn't really count. It was about your your brain and your intellect. Mm -hmm. And I spent a lot of time kind of being in and with the discourse of mastery without being able to fully understand why it didn't feel right. And over years of thinking it through and reading and reflecting, I realized that there was a kind of paradox in, in the, the way that we were thinking as post-colonial scholars um, in the field writ large, which is to say that in the call and the claim of ever more mastery, we were forgetting um, the ways that mastery and the claims and pursuits of mastery in the in the mid 20th century anti-colonial movements that so influenced our work that mastery hadn't really worked <laughs> and that it might be time to think about a different kind of practice or a different orientation to our work. Mm -hmm. And so I set off to really think about mastery and theorize mastery and spend time with it and to see how and where it emerged in, in post-colonial literary texts. And as I was doing that, I, I had this kind of amazing moment where I like to give props to people. So I had an external reviewer for my book manuscript um, where I was thinking a lot about vulnerable reading and vulnerable writing and what that would look like, what vulnerability would look like in the context of academic thought and academic writing. And the reviewer ended up being Jack Halberstam, who's a queer theorist. And I didn't know Jack at the time and didn't know that Jack was the reviewer. But what he diagnosed in the manuscript was that while I was busy critiquing mastery, I was also performing it as a literary scholar, that the thing that I was saying I was trying to undo was precisely how it, the mode in which I was writing. And that's really where you were saying more autobiographical writing came into play for me, because I was thinking a lot about what it would mean to situate myself and my orientations and my, my history in relation to the kind of intellectual thought that I was undertaking and and trying to produce. And so that's that's how something like a more self-reflexive or auto-theoretical mode entered into unthinking mastery, which was a pretty unconventional um, thing a few years ago in, in academic writing to have your first academic book have some kind of feminist autobiographical writing in an otherwise very theoretical and, and, and intellectually inclined text. So that's where it started. At the same time as I was writing that book, I I think I was always a person who was very compelled. You know, I think when we when we write a lot about literature, we're in literature and we're with literature in very intimate ways. And I was someone who was always very motivated by the creative mode, but maybe lacked the confidence to pursue it in full. Mm -hmm. um, and also thought that it wouldn't get me a job and uh, <laughs> having a, having <laughs> coming from a South Asian family, <laughs> there was a certain pressure to choose a career um, that would be profitable yeah. <laughs> um, because I wasn't, because I wasn't going to be a doctor or a scientist. I, I, um, I became a professor of literature. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think it was through that time of really thinking about what unthinking mastery might look like in the context of my own life and in the context of my teaching and the context of my work, I started to think more queerly and capaciously about what other forms of of writing and what other forms of thinking I could produce. And I think that No Archive Will Restore You, which was my second book that came out shortly after Unthinking Mastery, yes. um, and my new book, The Breaks, mm -hmm. kind of set, set off in that mode. Yes, yes, I absolutely, Unthinking Mastery is right here in front of me. I am, I'm gonna read it very soon. And it's, 
so amazing to see this fusion uh, of a memoir style and autobiographical elements and yet to have something so academic and so scholarly and to have a call to action in a lot of ways in your work because while I was listening to the breaks you were talking about unthinking traditional ways of parenting or to kind of instill an ecological consciousness while merging it with a maternal consciousness and I was immediately you know I was thinking of when growing up in India we were always asked to equate the earth to the mother the mother earth the giver that is something that I found fascinating about your work because there is this this amazing mixture of ecological and maternal consciousness, which you obviously get from your own mother too. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because speaking of this is a, this is a maybe an idiosyncratic way to approach what you just said, but one of the interesting things about South Asia and South Asian history and equating India with with the mother with Mother Earth is also that it's precisely that body of Mother Earth that gets severed in partition. Mm -hmm. And there are really interesting cartoons. I don't know if you've seen any of these around 1947, where it's the body of a woman whose whose limbs are being severed. And so there's something also about the desecration of the body, something about, you know, it's not just a kind of like easy fantasy of womanliness and reproduction Mm -hmm. and earthliness, but also the violence that gets inflicted on those bodies and how we might approach them through kind of eco-feminist lens where we understand patriarchy and extractive capitalism mm-hmm. as, as part and parcel of the same function and the same um, active ideology. My second book, No Archival Restore You, starts off from a quote by Antonio Gramsci, where Gramsci says, the starting point for critical elaboration is knowing yourself as a product of history and understanding yourself as an infinity of traces that you could never possibly gather, (laughs) but that it's imperative to try. (laughs) And so for me, I'm always interested, you know, I'm not particularly interested in, in my life as such, or, um, or anything special about the particularities of my life, even though it may be unconventional and even though it may be unusual in many ways mm-hmm. um, in, in terms of having a very queer family structure and in terms of being a, a non-conventional parent and maybe a non-conventional human in, in many, many ways. Mm-hmm. But that, um, but there's something about understanding your orientation and why it is you pursue what you pursue why it is you care about what you care about <laughs> that requires a kind of self-reflexivity. And, and so for me, you know, I think I went from being a graduate student who was being trained to think very big ideas that felt very outside of me <laughs> to try to understand where I was and where I was situated and how I might move my life or orient my life in relation to those big ideas. And so I think, again, to return to Gramsci, that that knowing oneself as a product of history and understanding that you're made up of a kind of infinite archive or accrual of histories that you couldn't possibly ever know, mm-hmm. but that it's your kind of job as a, as a, as a, as a conscious political thinker mm-hmm. to understand and to be able to situate yourself. And so for me, the, the, the autobiographical mode is less about the specialness of one's life and more about a kind of rooted politics where you were really setting out to investigate where your limits are, where your seams are, um, how you how you got to where you're thinking and where you might go 
from here. Yes. Yes, yes, that's that's really beautiful. Like I said, I was listening to the bricks and you mentioned the partition in and you've written and you've read about it so beautifully in such sensitive, such wonderful ways. I've read a few Indian literature literary stories about the partition, but your description was so vivid and yet so striking. And I was just going to ask you about how I've not really framed this as a question, but this came to me yesterday during your talk when you were talking about the nest and your upcoming project. And uh, you you mentioned how so many bodies and so many different stories have inhabited that house. And I was thinking of the partition and when families were displaced, entirely uprooted within a span of some days, along with the brood violence and uh, all that was happening. There are still those lingering traces and those nostalgic stories that exist within families who fled from the now Pakistan and came and have settled in New Delhi or in Kashmir or wherever. There are a lot of literary works that are coming out now, remnants of a separation and other novels that talk about, that trace those lineages and those old houses and, you know, about older people. Uh, I was just kind of trying to draw a connection with your work and, uh, you know, the work that you're trying to do with your upcoming project and the the way in which partition created a lot of displacement and still those traces are existing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, it was, I was very influenced too as a graduate student and continue to be influenced by um, people like Rajaswari Sundarajan, who, whose work it was to... Um, to discover the stories of women and the extraordinary violence and and, um, incredible numbers of abductions Mm -hmm. of women during the partition, to discover those those lost women's histories Mm -hmm. that were taboo and shameful to talk about and and the the kind of feminist work that was happening um, over the last several decades to to try to find those stories that weren't being told because of religious prescriptions and shame because of of cultural taboos etc and so i think the link to the nest for me is a link of understanding that there are very complicated and and sometimes um incredibly difficult histories right. that are hard to tell or that mm-hmm. are buried um, mm-hmm. yes. under a, under a dominant narrative of nation making. Yes. Um, and and so the the aim or the link among you know a, a kind of thinking of of partition and the ways that it impacts us, the ways that it continues to to impact us as as um, South Asian people, but also a, as the 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 daughters and granddaughters or or children and grandchildren of people who experienced it and people mm-hmm. whose families have been irrevocably shaped by it, even in ways we don't talk about, or even in ways we don't understand. And my father was one of those people who was, who was displaced um, during 1947 and whose earliest childhood memories are about it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that the, the turmoil of that time being something that we didn't talk about, that wasn't acceptable or appropriate to talk about, mm-hmm. um, the things that he saw as a child, et cetera. And I think part of, part of writing the breaks too, was really thinking about his experience as a child and my experience as a child, and now my daughter's experience as a child, and really thinking about those different geopolitical locations mm-hmm. for my dad in, in, a, in an India undergoing partition, 
for me being born in Canada to, to, to immigrant parents and on settler colonial land on treaty mm-hmm. one territory, and then moving to the United States and, and having a, a kid in the U S where the violence of history is almost never spoken about in terms of, of, of settler colonization and the attempted extermination of indigenous peoples here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it always falls along the, the lines of, of black and white America and the legacies of slavery, which of course is absolutely vital, mm-hmm. um, but, but also misses that crucial link. Yes. yes. So, so, you know, thinking a lot about our particular histories, but how our particular histories are intimately linked to the histories of others. Mm-hmm. who may not be like us, who may not be, quote unquote, our people, yeah. and to try to understand a kind of maternal orientation and, and childhood pedagogy that doesn't limit us according to our religions or our blood kin or our ethnicities or our races, mm-hmm. but understands a kind of complex network of, of connections and affiliations um, historically or or in the future for those of us who have been deeply impacted by by colonization and its enduring legacies. Yes, yes, indeed. And it's really um, interesting to see how a lot of narratives and projects about progress and development try to eliminate a traces of history and of colonized history in general, but how that's perceived by people is so different. I just read in the news recently that in India, there is this whole revamp project of in New Delhi that's supposed to happen that would create, that would try to, you know, limit colonial architecture and the India Gate and the, the, the place where the Republic Day Parade happens. There's a lot of construction going on currently and they would try to create more Indianized architectural elements about Indian history instead of the colonization history. And while I think of that, I also think about, like you mentioned yesterday, the protests against buildings and universities being named after racist leaders or leaders who not everyone looks up to. And that's something I have experienced at Clemson University as well, because there was a honors college called Calhoun Honors College. And after a lot of protests, they had to rename that building to Clemson University Honors College during the Black Lives Matter movement. And I keep thinking about these different interpretations and call to actions and how histories are being eliminated, but also embraced in a lot of ways. And it's it's just this complex mixture of, and it's amazing to see it in, in India as well as here in the US for me as a student. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, what I was talking about um, yesterday was a, there are actually two buildings at the University of Richmond that are quite controversial. One, Ryland Hall, that's named after yeah. an enslaver who was the university's first president. And the other, um, Freeman Hall, which is a, a residential hall for students, um, named after a, an active segregationist. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think part of what's so interesting about those debates is, well, you know, in in the case of India, we could say, okay, replacing or modifying existing architectures in order to represent something that is not simply a kind of straightforward, um, anglicized, British, Britishized uh, (laughs) version of the past, right? Colonial version of the past. Yes. Um, But here, there's something I, I think the debate for me is really interesting because here the debate is around, you know, the the worry about erasing history. 
So in renaming a building, the concern is we will erase history. And to me, there's something so interesting about imagining that a building's name is the repository of history, as opposed to history being deeply embedded in virtually everything that we do and all the systems that we <laughs> that we operate through. And so, you know, I think that that when it comes to those kinds of symbols of, of or, or honorary symbols of naming, for instance, and, mm-hmm. and of, of renaming or denaming a building, mm-hmm. we imagine, oh, we're we're actually, but not we, some people imagine that we're denying the truth of the past when in fact what we're doing is angling toward other pasts other past, that have not yeah. yet been recognized or that have been subjugated by one particular version of the past. Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, that's where the nest, the the project around a, a particular, like a single brick and mortar home and understanding that its history is documented and named after a white Western European banker, Mm -hmm. rather than a history that uplifts the the revolutionary women and incredibly um, historically significant women who have lived and taught and worked and labored in the house across time and or politically organized. And so it's a it's a way of asking, well, what histories do we do we want to uplift? Yes. Which doesn't require erasing other histories. It requires uplifting other ones, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's actually really, um, really interesting to think about. There are, there's another building at Clemson campus, which I, I'm reminded of, which is the premier building. It's called Tillman Hall. And Tillman is, uh, they're, they're trying to sign petitions and do everything they can, students and faculty members to, to, to ask the administrators to change the name. But there's been no action because that would erase history, like you said. It's, it's again, really interesting to think about these complicated things. But in the end, you know, they're not very, they're only complicated <laughs> because an administration refuses to listen to the people who live in those buildings and work in those buildings and learn in those buildings, which I think is a really interesting continuation of a kind of colonial logic, right? Where Where the desire of the people and the will of the people who are most intimately and immediately affected by space and by the politics of space aren't listened to. Yes, yes. And that's because students who are passing that building every day, who know the history, who are living on campus, and it's it's so there's this lingering feeling of subjugation that might still persist. I would like to ask you, stepping a little away from this current discussion, your advice in general to any current or upcoming graduate students? I would say, I don't know if this is advice so much as it is sharing my experience, but when I went to grad school, um, I had done an undergrad degree and a master's degree in Canada before moving to the U.S. into a um, fairly high pressure, highly competitive PhD program. Mm -hmm. And I spent Uh, much of my time as a graduate student feeling very behind (laughs) and very afraid that I wasn't understanding correctly. And, you know, I performed very well, which is to say that even if I felt totally bewildered by a text, 
you know, a book of theory or whatever we were studying at the time, I would come in and perform very well as though I wasn't totally confused and bewildered. And I felt therefore that I was faking my way through my studies. For me, I always tell graduate students and, and upper level undergrads that when you're, when you're approaching difficult material, you have to remember that your PhD is a time of encountering texts for the first time. <laughs> And, and not the, the sum total of your knowledge that in fact, you know, one of my mentors once told me that your PhD is nothing other than a kind of long period of study in which you learn where to look and, yeah. and where to return. <laughs> and so, you know, just to say that I, that I, I felt always like I wasn't getting enough out of mm -hmm. the things that I was encountering yes. because I wasn't understanding that actually I was just kind of building a library and building an archive of things that I could turn to and return to. Yes. And one of the nice things about being older and having gone through all of that is that I return to things all the time. And I see things that have been really exciting to me across my intellectual life. Yes. But I also discover things differently every time I return to a text. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I think that I think, you know, at the level of just like mental health and well-being and understanding that you do your best, mm -hmm. you read your best and you don't worry too much about what you get and don't get. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredibly helpful. And I I I feel I can relate a lot to what you said because we don't always feel we're we're really grasping the text or in the entirety yeah. of texts that we're reading um and uh, and it, it, it comes but, back to that original project of mastery right that we have a sense yeah. that we're supposed to come in having mastered a text mm -hmm. when when the truth is you know as a writer and especially as a creative writer that you actually never have mastery over a text at all and that it's a totally phantasmatic notion mm -hmm. and that when you read the breaks for instance you'll tell me something that you thought was really cool about it and I'll realize that you've made a connection I wasn't even totally conscious of or right so it, it's a yeah. it's a fantasy that we that we have full control and full authority over everything that we're doing all the time and that there's a certain amount of um not only flexibility I think required in in reading and writing yeah. but a, a kind of conceding to not understanding and the importance actually of not understanding and not understanding everything and, and allowing yourself to be a little bit lost. About the second part of my question, I know we're running out of time. I just wanted to ask urgent issues, according to you, within, you know, substreams within post-colonial studies that you would um, emphasize on. Many of the foundational questions of post-colonial studies through its emergence remain the, the cornerstones of the field. Um, and I might not be the best person to, to answer this question, but for mm -hmm. me, the place of Dalits, the caste question in India, which has always been foundational to post-colonial studies, even though it's often ignored in, mm -hmm. in the active scholarship. Um, I think ecology, mm -hmm. maybe this is an obvious answer for me, but the relation between colonization and ecological catastrophe, yes. um, sort of like mutual um, and inextricably linked forms of plundering mm -hmm. um, and and um, and fascism and, and the yes. rise and persistence of fascism. We want to extend our gratitude to Professor Singh for her time and attention 
in getting this interview together. The Breaks is out now via Coach House Books. Thank you for listening to this episode of Second Nature. Special thanks to Professor Landsberg and Aparna Shastri. This episode was edited by May Santiago. Music is by Daniel Birch.